0: Good job. You guys sing kind of high. I was trying to do that, but I was hitting puberty levels. <laughs> I felt changes in my body when I started singing that high. <laughs> well, um, it's almost. How many of you are all? You're all ready for Christmas. How many of you are not ready for Christmas? How many of you have not started your shopping at all? Zero. Raise your hand. Hi. <laughs> Half of the people. Oh, I feel so much better. Relative righteousness has just hit me. My wife, she's, you know, just doesn't have the spirit. She just starts a month early. I'm like, what's the rush? <laughs> it's the only reason why we have gifts under the trees, because she actually is organized. She has an app. She has an app for Christmas gifts. She was trying to explain to me how it worked this morning. I, I don't really care, but... The grandchildren care. It's kinda of weird. Anyway, hey, can you put like an, an hour up there or something? So I'm like Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't say I was gonna obey it, but at least I know at least I know when I'm gone. You know, I like hearing myself talk, so if I don't have a time thing going, I just enjoy myself way too much. Why don't you grab a hand and we'll we're gonna pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for Yeah, thank you for Christmas. I just really love this season, probably my favorite season. And Lord, we just we bless every single person who who hear this message. Lord, we pray especially for the the, um, less fortunate. We pray for those who don't have much, or maybe nothing. We pray for the lonely. For the disenfranchised, we pray for the broken families and the strained families, the children of um, parents who are in trouble. Lord, all of these things, we pray that there would just be a spirit of reconciliation, that you'd put the lonely in a family, that you'd break the power of hopelessness, as Paul prayed tonight, that you would release hope and joy and reconciliation and belonging and purpose into the lives of people. Amen. Amen. Uh, Someone just sent me this. Oh, that was a great word. I, I want to read it to you. I saw a guy wearing a deep sea diving suit. He sat down and started to take it off, and then he started to put on an astronaut suit. Then I started to walk out. Then, I guess, I guess... Oh then started to walk out to a rocket ship that was labeled with grace on the side. There was a field truck next to it, and it was labeled "Love." Then you said, "You have oh, then he said, "I saw you. You've said, "You've gone deep, but now I want you to go high, for my ways are higher than your ways. Come up high with me. I want to show you how high grace, fill, grace filled by love can truly go. I just thought that was just a great word right there. I received that for myself. I have a a name for my message tonight. Is there a skunk on your mantle? And I want to talk a little bit about divine purpose. So why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 4. And uh, we're just going to begin by just looking at a few verses and tell you a couple of stories. In Genesis 4 it says, Now, Man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Second verse, again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. I thought this was... uh, I just want to begin by saying that God has a purpose for you. And it was uh, interesting to me that the, the second people... you know, the second people, Cain and Abel, the second, third people to ever be born on the planet, I guess the first people to ever actually be born on a planet, were actually, they were actually given identities that were related to the job they were created to become, the job they were created to do. And it says in Cain, and Cain, Abel was the keeper of the flocks, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. I just want to begin by saying that God has a purpose for your life, and I've, repeated this um, Mark Sharona's quote that I heard at um, Cheon's church probably four years ago now. And um, Mark was preaching on purpose. And he said, God doesn't have a plan for your life. He has a purpose. And he has 150 ways, to, different plans to get you to your purpose. Have you ever... How many of you used the GPS before? How many of you have ever passed the street that the GPS told you to turn on? And it says... Recalculating. How many of you have heard the Lord say recalculating in your life? I, I, wanna, I just want to say one thing. I, I do believe that obviously we have to have a, a, a right heart, a pure heart before God. And I believe that God honors um, character. And I, I, I heard somebody say one time if you have the right attitude, get away with a lot of wrong things. You know, when you make mistakes, much different from sinning. Sinning is a willful act. Sinning is, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. But I, in my life, I've done a lot of recalculating. I have, I have had many times in my life a, a door open that I thought was the Lord. You know, And I've quoted, there's, you know, I've opened doors no man can shut. I'm like, I go through the door that I thought no man can shut, and I find out that that door that was open wasn't the Lord at all. How many of you went through doors in your life that you thought were the Lord, but turned out not to be the Lord? But it wasn't with a bad heart. You just made the wrong choice. And you sort of heard in one way or another recalculating. It wasn't like the Lord was saying, Oh, I can't get you here from here. I can't get you there from here. I can't get you to your purpose from here. I guess I want to say that your past doesn't define your future. And you are you are not your worst day. You're better than your worst day. And I think there's um, I, I, I know this could be taken wrong, but I think that many people Take life too seriously. Now I know there are times to mourn, there are times to be serious. I just mean, from the standpoint of taking risk, things that you've done that didn't go well, um, mistakes that you made, even sins that have been forgiven. How many of you know sins that are forgiven? You're restored to the high place again. When you sin and you've asked Jesus to forgive you and you've act, and you've actually turned around and repented, how many know that love rewrites your history? and I'm just, I'm just trying to get you to understand that i 'm not trying to like have like dumb down sin and, and say, you know everybody sin, and I, I, you know, let' just, let's just you know you send, I sin I don't like that atmosphere. I think the Lord's actually called us to not sin first John four uh, first John two says if if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, not when they sin, and I, I think we should have an if culture if you sin." We have a solution. But I don't think we should create such a solution that it's okay to sin. I think grace actually gives you the power to not sin. But even beyond, even above sin, I think we make mistakes in our life, and sometimes it feels like my life is over. And I just want to say, recalculating, that the Lord knows how to find you in prison as he did Joseph. He knows how to take your test and make it a money. <laughs> As in, test a money. He knows how to take the things that you've done that were wrong, even, and create a pathway for other people to follow you because they know you can relate. They can relate to you. And I, I just, I want you to lighten up. I've talked to so many people over the years, and I I feel like I haven't always said this. I say it less as I'm getting older, but I want to just say, get over it. (laughs) Not in a harsh way. Well, in the early days. (laughs) Let's confess my past. I want to say, it's okay. Get over it. And I, I meet people, as you do all the time, that, you know, they're my age or, or they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they did something as a... As a yeah, I'm in my 60s. <laughs> I, I know, some of you don't lie. I meet people that are old, and they did something in their childhood, or something was done to them, and they're still regurgitating it. And I'm like, at some point, not in a harsh way, I want to say, get past it. Recalculate. It doesn't... That your past... Has nothing to do with your future unless you let it. And I'm talking about your negative past. It doesn't have to have anything to do with your future. As a matter of fact, your bad past can actually accelerate your great future. I don't even know how the Lord does that. Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. I'll probably get these names really bad. You know, have you ever heard anyone who knows Hebrew read Hebrew? Michael Brown was here, oh, it's been years ago, and he read Isaiah 61, I believe, in Hebrew. It was beautiful, but it was like, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I just figured out, like, nobody that even thinks they know how to read these names right, reads them right. Because Abel's like, Cain's <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> So I'll do my best. But if you make fun of me, I'm like, hey, hey, I'm trying to do the original language. <laughs> Genesis 4.19. Um, Lamech took to, to himself two wives. The one, was, uh, one of them was named Adol, and the other was named Zillah. And Adol gave birth to Jebel, and he was the father of all those who dwelled in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was, was uh, Jubal. And he was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. As for Zella, she also gave birth to Tuba Cain, the forger of implements. I mean, dude, how would you like to have a hyphen in your name? My name is Chris John's son. That's just weird. The forge. Okay, well, i got to go back now. As for Zella, she gave birth to Tuba Kane, the forger of implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of two was Nahum. Now, the amazing thing to me is these guys who I probably hacked their names. It says that they gave birth. She gave birth. Listen to this. And Ada gave birth to Jeze- Jebel. And he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jebel, Was Jubal. He was the father of those who play lyres and, and pipe. And, you know, uh, Jubilee. That's where we get the word Jubilee or the tribe of Judah. It's, it comes from this guy who, he was literally a father to all the musicians. This other guy was the father to people who dwell in tents and have livestock. And this other guy was the father of everyone who works in bronze and iron. My point is this, is that this is like, this is like, Right after Cain and Abel were born, this is just the next chapter, I mean the same chapter, a few verses later, it, it begins to talk about people who had an identity that actually became a legacy in which that person's call on their life was actually more than just a call for themselves, it was actually defined geneal- the genealogy from that day forward And the people in Judah, can you imagine David from the tribe of Judah could trace his lineage back to this guy who was the father of everyone who played an instrument. And my point is this, if you don't do what you're supposed to be doing, a whole bunch of people won't get to do what they're supposed to be doing because what you do is actually not just for you, it's for your legacy. I'm saying that your DNA isn't just to hang around and sip suds in the castle. You literally have something, follow me, to do. You were created for good works in Christ Jesus. You know, I, I don't like grace. I don't like when people teach grace in a way that takes away responsibility. I think when you teach grace in a way that takes away personal responsibility, that you actually have another gospel. Because grace actually enables you to carry out your responsibility in God. When you teach grace in a way that takes away works, you understand you were created for good works in Christ Jesus, which He planned beforehand. Which He planned, are you with me? Which He planned beforehand. It's it's easy to see in the book of Genesis that God actually planned Cain's destiny beforehand. Abel's destiny beforehand. There were no keepers of flocks. There was no tillers of ground. How did they get the idea to do that? It was in their very DNA that they were created for good works and their good works, the work they were supposed to do, the work they were given to do, they actually gave birth to other people who did that work and later on whole tribes, if you will, took on an identity because one guy walked out his purpose and he worked in the job he was given to do. And that job, I would, propo- I would propose, is both spiritual and a legacy. I propose that when Abel was, t- was, was, keep, was keeping flocks, and Cain, if he had walked with God, when he was tilling the ground, that he was literally worshiping God. He was literally doing what he was created to do. And when he, when he tilled the ground, or when he kept flocks, or when he, when he played instruments, or when he kept the livestock, or when he, when he worked in bronze and silver, and so on and so forth, that because he was made to do that, and because I offer my body as a living sacrifice, that that thing I do is actually worship to God. It's more than just the thing I do. It's actually giving people a legacy and I like to suggest that when you when your legacy when your purpose gets derailed your legacy begins to falter now I said I began with <laughs> recalculating and some of us are older and you have like I've missed my purpose so long ago well start now it's not beyond God it's not beyond God's ability or his purpose, or his whatever, to restart you, to hit restart at 60, at 50, at 40, after a divorce, out of prison, reset. I mean, what's the worst thing you've done? I don't know. I mean, Paul, the murderer, becomes the great apostle Paul, writes 13 books of the Bible. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. I, 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 whatever you've done in your life, just let the Lord hit reset. Come back to your purpose, and not just for you, but for all of those who were supposed to get their DNA from your legacy. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. And they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, And immediately they left the boat and they followed. And their father. They left the boat and their father and followed him. A a few things, just really simple. I I had this picture this morning. I don't know how many of you were here this morning, but I had this picture. I, I don't want to call it a vision because I don't really know if it was a vision, but I'll just say it's divine imagination. And I saw the Lord coming to people's houses and he was touching them with something that looked like a wand. I have to be careful because people already think I'm like, you're a new ager. <laughs> Whatever. But he was touching them with like this wand. And it was like, you know when you were a kid, you see this little, these little cartoons where they touch with the wand and these sparkles come out. And I saw the Lord just touching people with like a wand. And all of a sudden, it, like, it was like kissing them awake. I said Cinderella, but I guess that was Sleeping Beauty. I know, one of them lost a slipper, and I remember that part. But they were just like, they were just awakened to their purpose. And I, I, feel, like, I feel like the Lord wants to awaken us to our purpose. I can just imagine, you know, James and, and John. They're, they're out fishing, and, you know, um, I mean, rumor, I mean, history has it that, you know, by now people already kind of knew who Jesus was. He taught, he was a rabbi. Did you guys know that... that Jesus was a great rabbi. Like they didn't just call him rabbi. Like he—that's why he taught um, on the Sabbath days in the temple and in the synagogue because Jesus was—he ac- was actually a, a famous rabbi before he was ever famous for being the Messiah. And um, and so they probably Peter and John and some of these guys probably knew knew Jesus at least from a distance, small small communities, and. Um, They're out fishing, and Jesus is all, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. A few things that I just want to grab from that. The first one is this, that your practical place of servanthood makes a way for your divine destiny. Sometimes people are like, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, do what you know to do, and the Lord will know where to find you. If you do what you know to do, the Lord will know where to find you. If you're tilling ground and the Lord wants a king, as in King Saul, the Lord will know where to find you because he told you to till ground. (laughs) If you're a fisherman, then fish. If you're a tax collector, then collect taxes. The Lord will know where to find you. Sometimes um, we make things so spiritual that people have a hard time connecting. Like, what's my next step? Like, you know, we talk about uh, heaven invading earth and we want to see signs and wonders. We want to see nations disciple, and it's just like it's such a lofty goal. It's like where do I start? At McDonald's, if you're called as a flipper of burgers, <laughs> flip burgers. The Lord will find you there. Just don't do nothing. I don't think the Lord. Oh, I'm not going to say that. When I was 15 years old, my, 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 I tell you, I've told stories a lot about my grandfather, but I also had an uncle. His name was Sally. Yes, his name was Sally. That was his real name, Uncle Sally. And Uncle Sally, I don't know if Uncle Sally ever made five foot tall. He was a very small, very tiny man. And he was a farmer. And he was my grandfather's best friend. He was my grandmother's brother. So he would have been my grandfather's brother-in-law. And... Uh, and my grandfather and him got along like best friends and worst enemies. They argued constantly, and that was their love language. (laughs) My my uncle and my grandfather were the opposite of cool. When I was 15, when I was in my teen years, I remember thinking, I don't want anybody to know I actually hang out with these guys because they are not cool at all. And my my, my, uh, my uncle had a farm... In Napa County, and he had um, he had some a vineyard, and he had some peaches and some apricots. And my grandfather and my uncle would take turns because my grandfather had a farm in Oakdale. Um, their their um, their picking seasons were at opposite times, so they would help each other. And so I would often like go and I lived on my grandfather's farm in the summer, so I would stay with my grandfather, and we would go over to my uncle's and help him. Um, at least with the last part of his harvest. And so I was with them um, quite a a bit. And one day we're driving uh, through Napa, and my Uncle Sally's driving, and my grandfather and him were in this kind of a really old, I don't remember what it was, but it was a kind of car that you didn't want to be in as a teenager. You know, it had the glory cloud. (laughs) How many of you remember the glory cloud? That's when you could see air. And so my, my grandfather and my sister and I are sitting in the back seat, and I was 15, my sister was 13, and I was slouched way down in the seat because we were going through town. And we got out on this, uh, out on this country road, and my uncle and my grandfather were you know, doing what they always do, bantering back and forth and arguing, and my uncle always drove really slow. My grandfather drove slower. <sighs> I still remember like traffic would be backed up like five miles behind my grandfather. My grandfather refused to go faster or pull over. So they're driving along, and my uncle runs over a skunk. <laughs> he hits a big skunk. Like, at first they thought it was a, uh, a small bobcat or a, a mountain lion. <sighs> Until we got about three, four, five feet from it, and you could smell it was definitely not a mountain lion. It was definitely a skunk. And so we, we run over, clunk, clunk, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is so, well, this is terrible. Not only am I in a funky car with my two old grandfather and uncle, we just ran over a skunk. Well, my uncle goes, well, that's the biggest skunk i ever seen. And they get talking and they turn around and go back for the skunk. This is an absolutely true story. And I'm, I, as a kid, I'm like, what the heck is going on? My uncle turns around, it's just a two-lane road, it's, there's no traffic, he turns around, and we go back to the skunk, and you know, like, first, it's, it stinks so bad, just because it's on the tires, and we're driving back towards it, it just stinks so bad, and my uncle's like, and my uncle and my grandfather both get out of the car, and I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening, we're parked so no one else can run over the skunk again, and my uncles, I can hear the windows are down. We have no air conditioning those days. It's summertime. And my uncle, I hear my uncle like, that's the biggest skunk I've ever seen. My grandfather, oh yeah, that's a big skunk. That's a nice looking skunk. Well, a minute later, my uncle opens the trunk of his car of which he carries a five-gallon bucket and a shovel wherever he goes. He picks the skunk up and puts it in the 5-gallon bucket, this is God's my witness, covers it up with dirt that's supposed to keep the smell away, hangs the 5-gallon bucket on the trailer hitch, and takes it home, oh yeah, we get home and he's all excited, he's telling my whole family, Wow, you should see the skunk I found. Oh, ran over it. Oh, you know, you think he shot it, you know, five point bucks. He ran over a skunk. I went back about six months later and he had the skunk mounted. It's a true story. He taxidermied the skunk himself and he mounted it over the mantle of the fireplace. I'm talking about the Beverly Hillbillies on steroids. I walk into my grandfather's farmhouse and the skunk is on the mantle over the fireplace. My uncle Taxi himself. I wish that wasn't a true story. I wish it didn't happen in my family. I wonder how many of you have a skunk over your mantle. See, if you care more about your hair than you do about your heart, you have a skunk over your mantle you got a value system that has nothing to do with God. (laughs) Matthew 6.16 Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your feet. Wash your face and your feet. You should wash your feet. I just think you should wash your feet, man. Especially if you run over a skunk. (laughs) But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Listen to this next verse. This is the next verse. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. For moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I thought it was interesting when he's talking about treasure. Now, actually, I looked up the word treasure just to see how many times it was used, and I think it's six times in the Gospels. Some of the stories are repeated stories. But this is really interesting to me because I actually, you know, I, re- I know both those stories, but I just didn't put them together. That in this passage, he's talking about who you're trying to impress determines where your treasure is. If you're trying to, be, if you're trying to impress the spiritual crowd, the in crowd, the cool crowd, God goes, uh, your treasure is not in heaven. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your treasure. If you have a house, if your house is your treasure, you got a skunk hanging on your mantle. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have nice things. But what do you treasure? How do you tell what you treasure? Well, some of it is like what identifies you? Where where's your identity coming from? What what thing do you what do you live for? Do you live for things? Do you have a house or does your house have you? It's it's really easy. To start out one way and end up another. If you long for fame and fortune, you probably have a skunk hanging on your mantle. It's not that you can't be famous or have lots of money, but if that's where your treasure is. You know, um, we used to have a business school, and I teach a lot of business principles, and I, I think business people are surprised when I say that money ought to be the fruit of a business, but not the reason for it. Something happens when you make money the reason why you're doing something, suddenly every customer feels like a dollar sign. I used to tell our team, when we were in business, I used to tell our team, let's make friends, and if we make friends, we'll make money. But if we try to make money, we won't make friends, and we won't make money. And if we do make money that way, it's not the kind of money we want. I see uh, signs that say, have you ever been to any kind of a store? There's a couple in town. When you get to the counter, it says, All sales final. (laughs) They're not trying to make friends. They're trying to make a sale. And they want to make sure that if you're not happy with that sale, don't come back to us because we only need you once. These are all signs that you got a skunk on your (laughs) mantle. These are not God's value system. If your morals are determined by your attractions, you have a skunk hanging on your mantle. How many of you know if your morals are determined by your feelings, by your attractions. How many understand that's not heaven's value system? It, you may... You know, my uncle actually thought that skunk was beautiful, but from most of our perspective, <laughs> he was misinformed. <laughs> if you're having sex outside of mas- marriage, you've got a skunk hanging on your mantle. When you... Do things that break your virtues to keep a person in your life. That's not the value system of heaven. We all know the pressure of it. I'm not. Uh, do you understand? What I'm not saying this in a, like condemning you, terrible person. I'm saying it stinks, and it. You may be the only one who can't smell it. But it's when the girl does whatever she has to do to keep the guy, or the guy does whatever he has to do to keep the girl, how many understand when you? violate your virtues to keep a person when you say when god says this and the person you're dating or you're with or whatever says well if you want me you have to do this how many understand when you exchange this for this you've exchanged gods this is a skunk on your mantle this is not the kingdom I've, you know, as a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for nine years with Christians and another five years with a secular group. And I watched young people. I watched beautiful young girls that were in my youth group. when they're, Lots of them were in my youth group when they were really young. And and I, lots of, for, because I was a youth pastor so long in the same place that I got to see lots of those little kids grow up into their teen years. I can't tell you how many times I've watched beautiful young women and men too. I'm thinking of a couple of women in in my mind right now who just they were just innocent girls beautiful at youth group every week love god up front worshiping whole thing finds a guy and pretty soon you know i watched well the bad news is i watched the guy steal their heart away and you can tell where your treasure is because you protect your treasure i've had probably a hundred conversations with young people, maybe more than that, but easily a hundred conversations trying to say to the young person, You're lose, you've switched treasures and the treasure that you switch for, I didn't say it like this, but he's a skunk on the wall. Like you switch heavenly treasures for earthly things. That is a bad exchange. You know, he gives beauty for ashes a mantle of praise for a spirit of heaviness. How I many you know that's a pretty good exchange? And um, I've watched many people, many young people, older people too, but I've watched many young people make really bad choices. You know, somebody uh, coined the phrase, love is blind. And, and in some ways it's true. Um, I, I've, probably most of us that are older, we've seen someone fall in love with somebody who's not healthy and they think everything's. Fine. And, you know, we're in this tension of, we want to find golden people, we want to love everybody, but I don't want, but, but that person that that person fell in love with is not healthy, is broken. And when you try to point out, hey, this is probably this behavior, the way they treat you, you know, the fact that they hit you, and that person oftentimes is defends them, like, well, they hit me because, and they, they treat me like that because I did this, and it's like, no, 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 they're not noble people, <laughs> and exchanging the treasure of heaven for earthly rewards. It's not hard to do. I bet all of us have done it one time or another in our lives. If you let fear silence your stand for God, you got a skunk hanging on your mantle. If you live to protect your lead instead of living to be fully alive, and to win. You might live in Skunksville. You know, um, we live in a world that doesn't want to hear the truth. Now, part of the challenge is is that we haven't always shared the truth in love. (laughs) That's on us. That's our bad. Because the Bible says that we are to speak the truth in love, and some people love to speak the truth more than love, love to speak the truth in love. But we're, we live in a world that, that doesn't, has a big. the big picture is, the world doesn't want to hear about righteousness. And so when you start, when you talk about morals and standards and nobility and righteousness, the world thinks that you are guilting them. But I'd like to suggest that there's a convictor of the world called Holy Spirit. And that sometimes what happens is when they get around people who are righteous, they don't like you because they're reminded of what's going on inside. And sometimes you try to, to try to drown the voice inside of you by the activities around you. But that's what happens when you exchange heavenly treasures for earthly possessions. Money sometimes can cover up a multitude of sins. I was thinking when I was in business, when we were in business in Weaverville, the challenge with a, a business in a community like Weaverville is that you have four seasons. And so we have, especially we have winter, we've a lot of times long winters, at least three or four months. And when we're talking about winters, we're talking typically about snow. You know, people don't go out in winter, in Weaverville winter. It's not like living in San Diego or Florida. Like, people basically hibernate in the winter. And so we owned four businesses in Weaverville, and that was a challenge because, first of all, you have a very small workforce. You know, we have 3,500 people in the whole community. So if you let an employee go, it's not like, like even in Reading. You let somebody go, and, there's, and you advertise for a job, and typically there's 40 you get 40 applications. In Weaverville, you, you advertise for a job, and you get four applications, and you're lucky if anyone is even qualified as a worker, much less for the skill you need. So so what I'm getting at is this, is that it was really important that we hung on to our workers because what a lot of businesses did is during the three or four months of winter, when things were really tight, they lay their workers off, and then when they need them again, they try to get them back. And that's a, that's a, that's a very tough call, especially when you have skilled positions like we had... In the automotive business, most of our, most of our um, positions were skilled positions. So it kind of went like this in business. For three months of the year, hopefully only three, we lost money. The next three months, we broke even. <laughs> in the last six months of the year, at various levels, we made a profit. And, and so um, hopefully you made enough profit in summer and spring to hold you over for winter and fall. <laughs> And we kind of rotated like that, and so it was very difficult to, you know, to actually get to a place where you actually felt like you were getting ahead. And about the time that you actually started to accumulate some money, it started to rain and then snow. Uh, what I'm saying is, is, that unless you had quite a bit of money, you had long periods of time where you didn't have capital. And we, um, we, we sold mostly to repair shops in our business, in our auto parts business. So. When they got slow, of course, we sold locally. So when they got slow, they stopped paying. and we got slow, we stopped paying. And so we end up with this cycle of, you know, um, about the end of winter, we are usually 60 days behind on our bills and struggling to make payrolls. And then, you know, for the next three months, we catch up our, you know, our, um, our, our bills and get caught up. And about that time, it's summer, and we start to put a little money away, and the process starts all over again. My point is this, is that, it's really easy to make assumptions about someone's character because they don't have money. I'm in a position now where I typically have more money than, than, I, can, than I can spend in a day. I mean, that I need in a day. And so, I, you know, when people work for me, I pay, I pay on time. I have for 15 years. I often give people bonuses when they work for me, do extra stuff for them. And, and it feels really good to be able to do things for people. But I'm always thinking, I'm the same person who was laid on my bills twenty years ago. My circumstances were different. But I'm this exact I'm the same person with the same heart. My heart hasn't changed. I would have loved to done that, have done that in the early days of my life. And what I'm getting at is this is uh, I'm gonna read you a few proverbs. Proverbs says the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love but but those who love the rich are many. Proverbs 19.4, wealth adds many friends, but the poor man is separated from his friends. Proverbs 19.6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. And my point is this, is that sometimes the things, sometimes money can hide, well, maybe I'll say it this way, people that have money can look like they're more righteous than people who are poor, and it may not be true at all. The person who can't give gifts, Proverbs says, can't find friends. I've found that to be true in my life. Like I've lived being very, uh, you know, poor. I've lived being having not no cash, and I've lived having extra money. And it's amazing how people will judge you by what you give, instead of who you are. And so I want to say two things to people in the room. There's lots of you that are struggling financially. That's not a skunk. That's your circumstances. How you do with what you have determines heaven's treasure. You may not be able to convince people on earth that you are righteous, but you're not trying to convince the people on earth that you're righteous. You're trying to you're trying your 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 father's the one who's watching in secret and rewarding you in secret. The challenges in Weaverville where for us were do we tithe in really tight times? I mean these are the challenges people have. They come up all the time and they're like, we have no money, should I tithe or should I pay this bill? Should I I mean those are challenges that are, I don't know if there's simple answers to those. It's like the borrower is the lender's slave. And the yes did i say it right yes the borrower is the lender's slave and so there's these other dynamics that, that come into play and and the lord challenged us the whole time to to not take like to give to give 10% to him no matter the condition and i find that it's a lot easier to give 40% when you have money than it is to give 10% when you are stone broke and yet the person who gets 40 who gives away 40% or half of their income is is celebrated and the person who's been faithful in giving 10% and struggling along and barely making it, some people don't have any idea that that person may have the better heart. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. if you're really struggling financially, would you just stand up? I don't want to shame you. I just want to bless you. A man named Bob Perry blessed my family. Um, It was probably really bad at time. Around 16 years ago, I just brought my, my, it was my family, my entire family happened to be here for a conference, all my sons, with the exception of my oldest son and my two daughters and my grandkids. And I just walked them over to That corner right there where Bob Perry and Claudia were sitting just during the worship. I felt the Lord told me to do this. And I said, I I just, Bob's not anybody who knows Bob Perry, he's not a public guy at all. A little bit kind of gruffy guy, which I love about him. Reminds me of my grandfather. Definitely not politically correct. And I just walked my whole family over there and and I said, Can you just bless my family? Can you just bless my family? He's like, What do you want? I said, I just want the wealth thing that's on you to be on my family because we have generations of poverty in my family. And he just said a very simple prayer, Claudia too, and I attribute the beginning of the turning of wealth on my family to that incident where Bob blessed us, and I would like to bless you. And if you're watching by Bethel TV, you can just do the same, stand in your living room if you're able And I would just like you to receive this as a shift both in the inner world, in your mentality, and also in the world around you. Because Deuteronomy 8.18, I know it's been quoted so many times, but it says this, God speaking to Moses. He said, tell the people I'm going to give them power to make wealth. Listen to the rest of this, that I might confirm my covenant with them. This is a pretty big deal to God. And by the way, that was an old covenant, which, as Bill's reminded us over and over, we live in a better one. So, how many of you believe that I can actually bless you and that it will actually change something in you? So, Lord, I just release blessing. The blessing you've put on this house, on Bill, on me, on our families. It's not for us. It's for all of us. And I just bless every single person in this room who's standing and those who are watching by iBethel TV and even those who are seated and yet need a greater blessing. Lord, I just release blessing and I just want to repeat what you said to Moses, that I want to give you power to make wealth, that I might confirm my covenant to you. And Lord, I pray for those that are standing and are struggling just for Christmas, and and even the shame that, that a culture puts on us for not being able to give the nicest gift. I, I have this picture in my mind, and this may reply to many people, but you're sitting around the tree, you don't even want to go to the family Christmas, because you, you wrote cards and you know there's a wealthy person in the family that gives big gifts. And, and it, it's almost a shame. You feel shamed by their generosity. and it, It's not that they're doing anything wrong and it's not that you can do anything different, but you just feel shame. Like you just don't want to go because everyone's going to admire the person who gave the gifts and yet it's all you can do to take 15 minutes per card and write something really nice on the card. But I want to tell you the father sees what you've done. The Father sees it. And I pray that the words that you write on that card will have a, a, a profound impact on the receivers. And so, Lord, I just release on every single person who's watching, who's standing, I just release right now prosperity of soul. As John said, I pray... Beloved, I pray that you'd prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. So I pray for a prosperous soul to be in this room, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's a good word. 1 Samuel uh, (laughs) 14.6. I entitled this, Leaving Skunksville. I love this story. Um, I think uh, Bill preached on this about five years ago, and I took several pages of notes. I just want to touch on a few things. Um, verse 6. Are you there? Did I say 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6? Then Samuel said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Turn, uh, Turn yourself, and here I am, for according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them, if they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will will take our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up to them, for the Lord has given them into our hands, for this shall be a sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes, where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hands, to the, given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer behind him, and they fell, be, and they all fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they put many of them to death. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men within a half a pharaoh of acre of land. And there were there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked. So it became a great trembling. I I just I want to kind of just paint a picture. Um, I think this is a this is a portion of uh, where the Philistines, who the arch enemies of Israel, are are in this. um, They're they're up on the top of this mountain, and Israel is camping below. And they've been there for like 40 days, and nothing's happened. Israel is terrified. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. The, the, the Philistines are better warriors, and so they've just been there for days doing nothing because of they're just... Have you ever been so afraid you're inactive? They're just, they're just inactive, fearful. And one day, Jonathan wakes up. I think it's like the 40th day. We should look it up because I could have the battles mixed up. But Jonathan wakes up one day early in the morning, and he says to his armor-bearer, Can the Lord save by many but not by few? <laughs> And the armor bearer is like, do everything that's in your heart. I'm with you. If you turn this way, I'll be with you. So Jonathan says, here's the battle plan. We're going to call up to those guys, and we're going to say, hey, hey, you Philistines, here we are. And if they say, come up to us, we're gonna, then we know the Lord has given them into our hands. But if they say, stay there, we're coming down to you, they're like, we're getting out of here. Now, I don't know if you see the irony of this battle plan but it's not the wisest plan I've ever heard of. Did you notice that Jonathan and his armor bearer are climbing up the mountain on all fours? It's not the best warrior position I can think of. And so they climb up this mountain where the Philistines' garrison is, the stronghold of the Philistines. There's thousands of them, and and they, they get to the stronghold, and they attack the Philistines. It's a crazy story. Two guys go after the Philistines. I saw this cartoon several years ago, and it was Jonathan and his armor-bearer surrounded by the Philistine army, and Jonathan looks at his armor-bearer and goes, Look, they're overconfident. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. That's the enemy's sword against himself. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle was spread beyond Beth-haven. Um, this is a really cool story because Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to brave, to become brave and courageous. And they finally like, hey, you know what? If we die, we die. The armor bearer, I, I think he should get the greatest reward. He's like, he don't have the vision, but he, has, <laughs> but he has loyalty. He's like, I'm with you. If we die, we die. And then Jonathan tells him the stupid plan. And he's like, I'm with you. And you, I can just imagine him climbing up this mountain. You know, And the Philistines are like, what the heck? They get to the top of the mountain, and what had troubled the Israelites for 40 days begins, the whole army begins to run from them. They killed 20 of them themselves. And Saul, they get up a little bit later, and they they go, Hey, where's Jonathan? Where's his armor bearer? I don't know. Well, you were here earlier this morning. And all of a sudden, they look up on the hill, and Jonathan has the entire army running away from them. And Saul goes, come on, let's go help him." And so now the armies of Israel are after them. Now, now there was people who defected to the Philistines. There were Hebrews who defected to the Philistines when the Philistines were winning. You know people like that? It says when the Hebrews who defected saw Jonathan and his armor bearer, they changed sides again. And they help Jonathan defeat the armies of the Philistines. And then it says, you can imagine they're in, this, they're, they're in this mountainous kind of, their valley with this mountain, and they're chasing the Philistines down off the mountain. And there's people, many of the Israelites during the battle had dug holes in the side of the mountain. They're hidden away in caves. And they come out of their caves, and they look, and they see Jonathan and his armor bearer chasing thousands of people. They're in their caves. They're like, we probably ought to help. And they run down, and they join the battle. And here's what I'm getting at. Your breakthrough, are you with me? Your breakthrough can be other people's breakthrough. Instead of complaining about the people who who are traitors and have joined the other side, create momentum. There's something about being fully alive. Are you with me? There's something about like leaving Skunksville where the value system stinks. Taking on the value system of heaven, leaving the politically correct world. I want to say something about that in a minute. Leaving the politically correct world, braving the political correctness and saying, listen, can the Lord save by many but not by few? You're outnumbered. The polls are against you. But you decide, listen, this is what the Lord's given me to do, and I'm going to do it. If I die, I die. And maybe you're Jonathan, you have the vision, you get the idea, and maybe you have no vision, but you're like, I'm loyal to the guy who has a vision. If we die, we die together. And I believe that when we are fully actualized, when we are fully alive, when we're living... When we're living inside of what God's called me to do. You might be the tiller of the ground. You might be the keeper of flock. You might be the, the, the one who works in bronze. You might be the one who, who sings the song. It doesn't matter. You just be fully alive. And you sing the song you're supposed to sing. Well, that's not the song that's on the charts. Is that the one you have to sing? Sing that song then. If you get Dove Awards for it, great. If you get nothing for it, it doesn't matter because you sang the song you're supposed to sing. I'm not against getting rewards, but as long as we're not doing it for earthly awards, if sometimes earth sees what heaven's doing, like Solomon's Queen of Sheba, and they go, that's amazing. But how many know, it's because I'm doing it for the king. And when I do it for the king, I do my best. It doesn't matter if I'm flipping burgers, I'm sweeping streets, or if I'm building a great cathedral. The point is, if I'm doing it for the king, I do my best. And if that attracts earthly attention, that's wonderful, but I'm not doing it for earth. I'm doing it for heaven. And when I get in a tight spot and I'm doing my best and my bills are 60 days behind, by the way, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not, I'm not validating that's okay. I'm just saying, I'm doing my best and I, I have to do my best. Did you hear what I said? I can't you know, drive around a, a yellow Corvette and not pay my bills. It's not okay. I, I'm simply saying, I'm doing my best. Did you hear that part? I am sacrificing. I'm doing my best to meet my, the needs. I have to answer to the Father and do my best. And I have to brave the shame of it's not good enough for somebody. I'm not exalting not, being, not paying your bills, but I'm saying there are a lot of people that can't pay their bills. They're not flakes. They might be employing your son. Oh, more to say. I really believe that we're in a season where the Lord's calling us back to heavenly treasures. If anybody knows me, you know I have a nice house. I have nice things. I have a team around me. I've asked them many times. If you see that these things have me any day, I, and I, I check myself like this. Could I leave this house? Could I get rid of this car? And, I'm, and I'm to this day, this moment, could change tomorrow. I'm like, it has no hold on me. It really has no hold on me. I, I, in fact, to be honest, Wealth is not my demon. I would say significance is something I have to manage pretty daily. So I have no problem having things. I just want to be clear. But there is something about that thing becoming my value system. Impressing people becoming my value system. Having nice things so I can impress people. That's my value system. Like Those things, we're not going to change the world with those value systems. I found... A temptation in my life. You know, it's funny when you have nothing. I'm talking about like you have no reputation, you have no money, nobody knows you. It's, it's I don't know, there's, in some ways, it's easier to live fully alive. Because if you mess up, what are they gonna take from you? <laughs> they can write about you on Facebook, but nobody knows you anyway. <laughs> if you went bankrupt, nobody's going to get anything because there's no money to get. And I think that as time's gone on, I, this, a greater temptation in my life has been living to not lose instead of to win. Living with the same reckless abandon, and I say reckless in a good way, not in a, like, you know, bull in a china closet way, but with reckless abandon, living fully alive, living fully obeying the Lord, when, quote, you have a reputation. <laughs> you have stuff people can take. And um, I, I don't have any problem with having insurance or insuring your, your wealth or whatever, as long as you s- don't stop living because you have stuff. I um. I love Bill. I, I, I don't know how many times I talk about him in a year, but a lot. Probably because he you know, he's my spiritual father, so. But, um, I, I was telling a story, I had some pastors together, and they, oftentimes, when I get together with pastors, that, that don't know Bill, they they want to hear Bill stories. And they want to know, like, how are you with this man? Why are you with this, this man? How is he behind the scenes? And, and I was with some folks, this week, who were trying to build their church. And so they said, do you have any church building strategies? I said, no, I, Never lived with a guy who had one. Didn't have a church building strategy. As a matter of fact, he was kind of excited when people left. And I kind of looked at me funny, and they're like, What, what do you mean? I said, Well, you know, I said, when we, I said, When I came to Bethel, a thousand people had left before I got there. I always say before I got there because I wanted to be clear it wasn't me who chased them away. <laughs> I already have my issues. But I remember um, having a conversation that went something like this with Bill. I, I won't get it word for word, but the concept was right. It's about when the first year they came, a lot of people left. And we, Bill and I were interacting. I was still in Weaverville. But, um, you know, and Bill was saying, you know, I think I'm going to bring, I think it was uh, not Rodney, but it was Basil. Basil. And, uh, and they did this meeting, and a bunch of people left. And Bill said, I really feel like I need to have them back to make sure that all the people who are supposed to leave, leave. I'm like, that's the opposite of a business strategy. (laughs) And we would have conversations around, you know, hey, you know, if people aren't supposed to be with me, I want them to be where they're supposed to be. And I want to be fully me. And everybody who is supposed to be with me, they're going to know who me is. I don't want to really ease into this. Like, I want to be fully me. And if they're supposed to be with me, they'll be with me. And if they're not, no sense them lingering. So I was sharing that story with them. <laughs> These guys are like, they are they're actually flew here from a long ways away. I won't tell you where. To meet with me for a church growth strategy. <laughs> like, dude, you, you came to the wrong place for the church growth strategy. This is the strategy my father taught me. Do what God tells you to do. And if it's just you and your wife, it'll be awesome in heaven. <laughs> and what I learned wasn't, you know... I'm personally not I'm not a church guy, and that I didn't grow up in the church. So uh, you know, I'm kind of I'm always trying to learn like the structure of church and stuff. But I, I learned by watching Bill, and that's just that's a public example. But I watched him do it throughout our lives when we were young. I I learned like the Lord can entrust you thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, or millions of people. if they don't become your identity. And I don't know who coined this, but if you fear the people, you're not leading them. They're leading you. And I watch a lot of spiritual leaders that I love, by the way. And by the way, this is easy to talk about. Much harder to do. I don't... I'm definitely not... I'm not demeaning anyone who's in the struggle because I know the struggle well. And I bet Bill knows the struggle well. I think we all know the struggle well. Everyone who's who's ever led a group of people. I mean, if you love people, you don't want them to leave. Just because you love them, you don't want them to leave. But there's something about heaven's treasure being tested in us at times so that the Lord can give us more or reduce us to the place where heaven remains our treasure. I have a silly example. I'll end with this tonight. I, I like watches. I, I never wore a watch till I came here. I was always working on cars. So you, you just you didn't wear watches because they just get messed up. So I got my first watch when I came here. I was so proud of it. And uh, I bought this watch on the coast. I mean, I'd never bought a watch before, and I bought a $125 watch. Somebody gave me some money. I understand now that that's not an expensive watch, but I didn't know anything about watches. And I'm like, well, this is a cool watch. I mean, all I'd ever had was a Timex with a rubber band, know, like, it cost like 14 bucks. you know. tick forever. I bought this $100, $125 watch, and I was like, I was pretty proud of it. And uh, I was sitting in the front row, and this man was sitting behind me. This is like year one. And I, when I was worshiping, he goes, hey, that's a cool watch. I should have said, hey, where's your treasure? <laughs> he said, that's a cool watch. Can I see it? So I took it off and gave it to him. And About a half an hour went by, and I'm like, hey, where's my... I had like one day. I bought it on Saturday. Like one day, I'm like, oh, my treasure. I need my treasure. So, I'm, so, so finally, I turn to him and go, hey, give me my watch back. And he gives me his watch. And I'm like, I don't think I like it as well. He goes, yeah, I'll swap you. And I'm thinking inside, oh, I don't want to swap. I want the watch I bought. He goes, I'll swap you. And at first I thought he was kidding. Then he walked off. (laughs) Left the service, he had my watch. And I'm like... And his watch didn't fit me. And he goes, hey, I'll bring you some links, links next week. I'm like, oh. So anyway, so he gives me links for my watch. I have to obviously go to the jeweler to get it fixed. So I go to the jeweler, and, my, and the jeweler goes, whoa, that's a beautiful watch. I said, yeah, I had a pretty nice watch. The guy gave me this one. He's like, gave it to you? I said, yeah. She goes, well. And she pulls the exact watch out of the, out of the counter, $1,900. It's in Nevada. And I'm like,
1: oh,
0: that is a nice watch. I have this watch for, like, two years, right? It's like, you know, it's like the greatest treasure I have. I'm like, I'm driving around a 72 a, a Ford Courier, and I got a $2,000 watch, on. I'm like, oh, this is worth more than my car. I could buy two couriers with this, well, this watch. I wore that thing every. I wore it in the shop. I'm like, this just began to define me. So I go to YWAM in a Fiji and I'm teaching at YWAM, and the guy that leads YWAM, great guy, he goes, "Oh, I like that watch." Oh yeah, me too. He's like, "Oh, you should give me that watch." <laughs> uh uh-uh. <laughs> No, no, this is my greatest treasure. This is God gave me this watch. Can't give it away. God gave me this watch. I was there for five days. Every morning we had breakfast. Every morning he's like. I like that watch. I think you're supposed to give it to me. I'm like, "Oh, no, no. I am definitely. I listen." Nope. <laughs> nope, not supposed to. Here, let's listen again. Nope. <laughs> the fifth the uh it'd be the fourth night, the fifth morning. We're going to fly out. I'm going to teach them we fly out that night. The fourth morning, I wake up and I hear, "Give him your watch." I'll say, well, what are you going to give me back? He said, you're never going to know until you give the watch up. <laughs> Seriously? A watch. I have 80 of them now. But I had one. I'm like, oh. uh, so I, I'm all, all, you know, I didn't want to tell Kathy because Kathy, she's like, Bill, she's like, whatever, just do whatever the Lord tells you. Like, get behind me, Satan. so I get to breakfast we go through breakfast he doesn't say anything about the watch it's the first morning he doesn't say anything about the watch we finish breakfast I'm like oh I got through breakfast he's not going to ask again and the Lord's like give him your watch I'm like oh, I don't want to go there's 13 reasons why I should it give him your watch okay so we're walking out and I take my watch off and I said here I'm supposed to give this to you he goes oh no I can't take it I'll just shut up and take the watch dude Then didn't sleep for five nights because of you take the watch He's like, no, no, I said, seriously, if you don't take the watch, I'm going to throw it in the freaking garbage can. You're going to have to go get it. Take the watch. So he takes the watch. And before I leave Fiji, I get a beautiful watch. It is like the best watch I've ever had, a $2,500 watch. It is beautiful. It's made out of ceramic. It's all black. It is the coolest watch i ever had. I get to Romania the next year. Romania, they have no money. There ain't anybody there who's got a Timex watch, much less my $2,500 watch. The pastor goes, oh, I like your watch. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm keeping this watch. We're there three days. The second day, the Lord's, give him your watch. I'm like, oh, no. Okay, I'll give him the watch if you tell me what you're going to give me back. He said, okay, so what you're saying is, is that you have decided what level of treasure I can trust you with. So when you get here, you stop being generous. You like this watch, Lord? I'll leave it in Romania. I give my watch to the guy. Oh, I couldn't take it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, you are taking this. I am not getting stuck at this little level. Really crazy. The Lord, has the Lord ever used anything to talk to you? I, there was a, so years later, t- four years later, there's a guy in Canada. Why don't you stand? up? get you ready. There's a guy in Canada has this beautiful $25,000 watch. I see his watch and go, oh, that's beautiful. He goes, oh, yeah, a guy gave it to me. It's a $25,000 watch. I go, well, wow, that is really beautiful. And so we're sitting in, we're I'm doing his church service and he leans over and goes, do you want that watch? I said, do you want to give it to me? He said, no. I said, I don't want it then. He said, okay. Do you like it? Yes. Do you really want it? No. Yes, I want it. Do you want to give it to me? No. We finish worship. I get done preaching. I get off the podium. Do you like this watch? Yes. Do you want me to give it to you? Do you want to give it to me? No. I don't want it then. We get in his car. He drives me to the airport. We get to the airport. Do you like this watch? Yes. Do you want me to give it to you? Do you want to? No, I don't. Okay, then don't give it to me. I get out of the car, unload all the luggage. He runs after me. I'm not supposed to keep this watch. He gives it to me. Three years later, it breaks. I send it in to get it fixed. It's a phony. It's worth 15 dollars. You even know what that means? It was a skunk. I bet that guy got a $25,000 reward for a watch that wasn't worth. Fifteen dollars. Because he thought it was. I just have the deepest sense that the Lord is calling us to deep purpose. But I believe that we all have to calibrate. I, I, I definitely speak to myself tonight and say, it's so important that we keep the main thing, the main thing. That earthly treasures, whether it's influence with people, or whether it's a house on the hill, or whether it's fame or fortune, or... Whatever, whatever, whatever. Whatever it is that is your like the demons out there, and you, you probably know it. If you're older than 15, you probably know, hey, that thing right there, that's the thing that tries to derail me. But I've put people around me. I've put God in my heart. It's like that thing's not ever going to take me down because I'm aware of it, and I have, have a strategic plan, not against that, but for that. I stay for that. Put your hand on your heart. I want to just pray for you. Lord, you talked about our hearts tonight. And you said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And so we can tell where our heart is by what we treasure. I pray tonight that you would, as you do so well, that you would search our hearts. Uh, David prayed this prayer, I, I think often, that you would search our hearts, and if you find anything in there that isn't right, whether it's evil or whether it's just two degrees off, I pray, God, that you would adjust us, that you would use wise people to speak into our lives, that you would talk to us, and that, like the watch story, we wouldn't get stuck at one level, that we would live fully alive, and that whether we have very little or whether we have a lot, that we would stay in the same mode. I don't live my life to not lose. I live my life to win. I run to win. I fight to win. I live to win. I don't live to not lose. So, Lord, let us release every single person in, in here to their destiny. And I pray, too, Lord, for those who have been under shame. How many know shame will taxidermy a skunk for you in a day? Do not live with shame. Lord, we break the power of shame over people, whether it's over their finances or whether their past. Maybe it's a divorce or a child who's not living right. The devil has so many ways to convince us that those things are our identity. And Lord, we break shame off of people tonight in Jesus' name. And we release God's identity. And we pray, God, that you would give us courage. That you would give us courage in the midst of public opinion. And that we would shift the atmosphere of earth by holding on to heavenly treasures. In Jesus' name, everybody said, so be it. So be it. We're going to have a fire tunnel tonight. If you've never been in a fire tunnel, Chris is going to, come on, Chris, you're the fire tunnel man. Chris is going to show us how to do a fire tunnel. Awesome.
1: Can we welcome our ministry team? And could you uh, just thank Chris for that? That was an extraordinary word. His honesty and vulnerability just changes the way you think and live your life. It's so wonderful. So let's invite our our ministry team up to the front. That way we can have two fire tunnels. If you could just wait to go just so that our ministry team can get moving into the places they can get to. And I'll explain a little bit. If you've never done a fire tunnel with us, it's a way for us to get to pray for everyone in this room tonight in a beautiful and meaningful fashion. Two people will come down, two rows down the middle. You'll be able to walk down Each side is both anointed and wonderful. You just get to pick which way you want to go. And we'll pray for you as you go. As you walk, our team will minister to you. Bring your belongings with you. And that way you uh, can make sure you have them at the end. Do we have any more of our ministry team available to pray for people? We still need quite a few to make two fire tunnels. Huh. Any school of ministry students, second year, third year alumni that can help us out? We might convert it into one tunnel. If you guys could come and scoot down and start to form that side right here. We're going to... Jerry, we need some on this side. Down at the end. Are you guys all part of the fire tunnel? You guys are all part of the fire tunnel? Part of the fire tunnel? Part of the fire tunnel? Great. Thank you. All right. We're going to go right down the middle. Two rows. You're going to go through and get prayer. All right. Here we go. Music's going to begin. You guys can begin to go. Jared or somebody, one of you guys can direct them. Pick a side. Go through there. Two two, lines. Two lines. To help us stack chairs, we greatly appreciate it. So sit we stack chairs. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, we you, know. see, so so yeah. oh, on. The yeah. you us go. so you. God loves you so Thank much. You.
2: Thank you for joining us. On our website, iBethel.org, you can find our pastor's itineraries who may be visiting a place near you. Bill Johnson will be in Kansas City, Missouri, December 29th through the 31st. And Joaquin Evans will be in Birmingham, Alabama, January 7th and 8th. Now we want to hear from you. If you have any prayer requests, you can email them to pastor@bethel.tv. Our team would love to pray for you and be sure to send us your testimonies as well we recently heard a testimony from a Bethel TV viewer who was reading Isaiah 62.10 and was asking Holy Spirit to explain to him what the stones in the verse meant. At the end of his quiet time, he started watching a Sunday morning service on Bethel TV, and Chris Vallotton said that he had a strange word about Isaiah 62.10 and explained what the stones in the verse meant and what God was going to do. We know that God hears all of your questions and prayers, and He is faithful to answer. He is a good God and cares for you so deeply that He sent His Son to pay for our sins so that we can enjoy a relationship with Him. Thank you for watching Bethel TV and joining us in our Bethel family around the world. We hope to see you again soon.